Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast, the only show where we start talking about werewolves and end up on glittery penises. I'm Anna Bogutska, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you've ever listened to the show before, you'll know my undying love for the Canadian teen girl werewolf horror Ginger Snaps, which also coincidentally was released in the year 2000. What a banging year for teen horror. I covered the first film with the great writer and podcaster Alexandra West from the Faculty of Horror Pod on our second series, which was all about female monsters, and I'll link to that episode in the show notes. But we didn't really go into the sequels in that conversation, so this teen horror series was my opportunity to revisit the world of the Fitzgerald sisters, Ginger and Bridget, with the brilliant and brilliantly funny writer and podcaster Becky Dark. Before we dive into our episode this week, a quick reminder, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Final Ghost UK. and as usual, I'd deeply appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. A small comment, I don't need much, but it does mean a lot, and it really helps the algorithm, which helps people discover the show. Please note, as always, all of our discussions are spoiler-heavy pretty much from the start, and that includes every film in the Ginger Snaps universe, including the first one. So with all of that said, please enjoy our takes on Ginger Snaps Unleashed and Ginger Snaps Back. Becky, thank you so much for coming on to talk about the Ginger Snaps trilogy, or rather, should I say that's the second and the third film in the Ginger Snaps trilogy. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be back. It seems like ages, so it's delightful to be back. I know. I can't even recall what was the last episode we did together. No, so I don't. I can't think. The last time we actually podcasted together was, of course, on stage last October. But in terms of actually, um, yeah, us doing a normal episode, it's been time. So it's nice to be back. Truly, truly is. So this... I really wanted to revisit the Ginger Snaps trilogy because we spoke about the the first film, Ginger Snaps, as part of the Female Monster series, mm-hmm. but it's also so much a teen girl horror as well. So mm-hmm. before we get into Ginger Snaps Unleashed and Ginger Snaps Back, um, what's your relationship with, with the original film? I mean, I love it. I think um, like so many um, young women of our generation and below, um, it's, yeah, I mean, it looms large in my kind of um, feminine horror um, loves. Although saying that, I came to it relatively late. I've only seen it um, over the last, hmm, probably within the last five years. So it's not one that uh, I was kind of watching back in the day when I was watching, you know, I don't know, The Craft and um, even, I mean, I saw like Jennifer's Body and stuff even before I saw Ginger really? And I don't even really know why. Like it just kind of passed me by. Um, I love werewolves. I love teen girls. I love, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Um, and I just never quite got around to watching it. And then when I did, it was literally one of those um, perfect examples of, what took me so long? <laughs> Where has this film been all my life? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, I think it's like become really, really iconic. And now is like, of course, just an absolute firm favorite. Oh, totally. I will, like, even when, uh, when I recorded the episode with Alex West about the original, I was struggling to remember kind of where I saw it first because it always mm. seemed to be kind of in my mind, specifically the really grungy angsty late 90s vibe of it all like the old girl horror film par excellence for me um and this the sequel or the franchising of ginger snaps becomes so interesting because it's also kind of rare for a film that centers like teen girl werewolves to become and also a canadian low-budget independent horror film to become a franchise of sorts. So had you seen the second and the third film before before we arranged this episode? 
No, I hadn't. So um, I think if if anybody's familiar with my watching habits through my podcasting storytelling, um, my my one and done um, reputation will precede me. So I've always <laughs> been like, you know, I just watched the first one of a sequel of a of a um, franchise or or a trilogy or whatever. Um, so I've never done a lot of sequels, and Ginger Snaps is um, one of the. Uh, trilogies or franchises that has kind of fallen within that I've spent the last couple of years really kind of catching up and filling in a lot of gaps of my um, sequel knowledge and I think because as I say because Ginger Snaps was um, relatively um, late coming like I didn't see it kind of back you know when it was first released um, I just haven't gotten around to seeing the sequels yet so when you messaged and asked if I wanted to do two and three with you for the podcast it was like the perfect opportunity and honestly can't thank you enough absolutely loved it <laughs> so this this might be a weird question but based on your uh, love for the first one Mm. Did you have any expectations of the sequels? And what did you think of them kind of after you you watched them? That like did they meet those expectations? Yeah, um I think my expectations were sort of twofold. I think um especially based on, as you say, the first one being really low budget and um what I know of my experiences with some other um sequels or franchises of this era so when they kind of started uh late 90s and or um early noughties and then got a couple of spin-off films the spin-off films aren't always great quality and i'm thinking about like maybe the urgent urban legend films like i love the first urban legend <laughs> don't particularly like the two follow-ups right so i was kind of expecting which mm-hmm. just snaps two and three for them to maybe follow a similar trajectory as, let's say, the urban legend films. But my second expectation and what I was really um, actually excited about is the fact that the two leads from the first film come back, which mm-hmm. is like super, super unusual, right? Yeah. I mean, even in huge sequels um, or, or sequels of of larger franchises um it's not all that common to always get those stars coming back or if they do come back they quite often get polished off in the you know first 15 minutes of the second film or something like that yeah it's like glorified Um, cameos basically as opposed to reprising the same roles in depth precisely yeah exactly that and so knowing that you get the two girls you get ginger and um bridget coming back for both parts two and three um had me really really excited because like you know i mean again going back to like the kind of iconic comment from earlier i feel like ginger and bridget have become like really iconic in the in the horror canon of you know sort of young female leads and they're so different and so Mm. interesting and so i was excited to see like them coming back um and then in terms of what my actual experience was watching the films like just I'm so delighted. I really, really loved both of them. Like, and they're both so different yes. um, from each other. Uh, and, you know, three is definitely so different from one. And yeah, so I've just, I've, I've basically back to back to them both today in preparation for us talking. I've had the best Friday. I've loved it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into, we're primed, we're ready uh, let's get into Ginger Snaps Unleashed, which is the direct sequel to Ginger Snaps. So set the scene for us, kind of where does this film pick up after Ginger's death in the first one? So the film basically picks up with Bridget and um, she's kind of on the run. Um, so we know that at the end of the first film, she has infected herself with um, Ginger's blood. So she has got the kind of werewolf now within her. Um, she's killed Ginger or what was left of Ginger. And um, in the second film, we basically pick up with her. She is 
um, in what looks like a little motel room. And definitely through the credit sequence, we learn a little bit about her existence. So she is giving herself the um, like wolfsbane, the like monk's hood kind of um, treatment. And um, she also is like cu- cutting herself and um, tracking how long her wounds take to heal so she's kind mm-hmm. of tracking like her transformation like her werewolf transformation through that and she's also going to a local library and try like she's obviously kind of doing research and stuff and close yeah. to the beginning of the film there is an attack from a werewolf and she gets carted off to a drug rehabilitation clinic um amongst other things we are uh, led to understand um but basically they think she's a junkie because of all of the track marks on her arms and all of her um self-harm scars and um you know it kind of goes from there with her realizing that she is locked up in an institution with no access to her meds and her transformation uh, into werewolf starts to escalate i mean wow yeah what? right what do you think of it as a as a premise for the sequel? I think it's clever because mm. it automatically constrains Bridget, right? So she's gone from you don't spend very long with her um just kind of trying to navigate normal life. But what you do learn is that she seems to be relatively on top of things. You know, we know from the first film that Bridget is really smart and resourceful. Um, and so even though she's not exactly thriving in the first part of the sequel, um, she does seem to be, um, you know, handling the situation and what the premise of the film, uh, as it unfolds, what that does is it, it, constrains her in this clinic and introduces her to a load of new characters who don't know the situation that she's in and who are making like real assumptions about her situation um that you know they think i think it's really interesting that they think that they are doing what is best for her and the people around her um but actually um you know they are putting her and everybody else in like mortal danger because she is very quickly turning into um a sort of apex predator (laughs) i mean it's so interesting uh i remember i watched it this this the sequels kind of binged it almost directly after watching the first one and Mm. i remember them being disappointing so it was again kind of like coming afresh into these films Mm. and you're right the premise is so clever because it's kind of it kind of has a big challenge it's like what do you do with the with the story of these two teenage sisters when one of them is gone yeah and you can't really bring her back and it's and it's kind of like body horror in reverse the way i saw it because it's both like this girl in the run who is so aware of what she might become because she's just gone through all of that with her, with her sister. Yeah. That she's kind of harming herself by being completely removed from her body where it doesn't really register as pain or as harm. It's like she's monitoring herself, like you yeah. said. She's trying to control this thing that is controlling her body. So she knows exactly what it is. There is no longer that thing of like that happened in the first film and sort of figuring out what it is, you know, and that metaphor of the teenage, uh, like the, the, the teenage body transforming and evolving and all of that. Now this is like an entirely different thing and it becomes almost like an addiction. And I wonder what you think about the, um, because it's used very kind of openly in the film. She's treated like an addict and like a person who is also harming herself. And we know that there is a supernatural reason for that. But the film itself like plays out kind of like a sort of darker girl interrupted type film. Yeah, I was just about yeah? to say girl interrupted. You're so right. Um, and it is really interesting because especially, you know, what you're saying about the element of control behind it and her trying to sort of monitor and control the situation. Mm. Um, you know, self-harm in 
like IRL um, can often be about, you know, control over one's body. And especially it can um, affect adolescents when they really feel that life is kind of out of their control and sort of spiraling around them. And this um, idea of self-harm and then like self-treatment um, of the, the resulting wounds is such a play for mm-hmm. control and something that is very much, you know, um, sort of within within their safety zone you know this is the one thing that they feel that they have complete control over and so i think it's a really helpful and and smartly um utilized metaphor actually in this film um and with the addiction side of things as well you know um it, it does it does um in some ways kind of track a similar narrative arc to just addiction films you know i'm Mm -hmm. thinking about i don't know stuff like um basketball diaries and stuff that wasn't out like too long before this and um you know these adolescent addiction films where um you know they they are sort of in denial about it and then they are you know in horrible withdrawal and stuff and you get some really interesting scenes with bridget's withdrawal but it's not Mm played as withdrawal from the substance itself it is the wolf kind of taking over and and her not being able to keep that at bay anymore Mm -hmm. so i think it's really smart and and i think um it's i don't know like it's not it's on the nose in that it's obvious what they're trying to do but it's not so heavy-handed that it sort of made me roll my eyes i was like i thought it sort of does it in a really smart kind of subtle and it gives way for a few very sparing scenes of body horror with Bridget as well like I'm thinking of the uh, towards the end of the film when she's injected with with Wolfsbane and her arm just starts basically bubbling up Mm -hmm. and it's fucking grotesque but it's essentially like a supernatural version of an overdose yeah it really reminded me of Requiem for a Dream yes oh Um, my god oh like Jared Leto's horrible, 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 Ugh. horrific, yes. dreadful, terrible, bad. <laughs> no. um, but yeah, you're so right. Like that is, uh, yeah, you're right. There are mo- other moments of body horror throughout the film, as there mm. always are with werewolf movies. But that is the moment that I was literally like, it's <laughs> on turning away from the screen um, because the bubbling and like the stuff that's like coming back out of the wound and... Um, is it is it Travis the, yeah. the like orderly guy? His reaction is so good because he just goes into full panic, um, and you know this shouldn't be happening. Like I've never seen this before, and it really just um, you know he's somebody who has some um, interesting sort of predilections, and it for him to react in that way, I think really kind of I mean you can see it in front of you anyway, but his reaction just really drives it home. Mm. And it like it takes him a while as well to sort of click into. Oh no, wait! I'm a sort of a medical professional. I know what to yeah. do in these situations. Yes, let's take it to a hospital. Um, <laughs> but I mean, he's just a pure and out scumbag because he's abusing all the girls at the facility at the institution by a providing them drugs in exchange for sexual favors. Mm-hmm. Um, so Travis can can fuck off and go to hell. Yeah, I mean it's it's so. It's interesting though. Like, yes, I mean, absolutely. He's horrific and he can fuck off and go to hell. There is absolutely no <laughs> argument from uh, my side there. But mm-hmm. I did, um, what I liked about him as the kind of movies douchebag character mm. is he's like, he's not a one dimensional douchebag. He's like a three dimensional douchebag. And so he's not, it would have been so easy for them to have been a bit more lazy with it and for him to just be um, giving the girls drugs for sex. Hmm. But then he, he he sort of, he comes to Bridget and, Ginger, um, Bridget and Ghost's aid later and kind of doesn't ask for anything in return at that point and you Mm -hmm. know he puts in a call to the woman at the clinic to kind of get her to come and help even though it knows that he's it's going to get him into trouble and um they start to get you to believe that he has maybe been um abusing ghost as well which obviously would have been an extra level of horrific 
reaction on his mm. part because she is, you know, much younger. Um, and then it turns out actually, no, she's, she was kind of lying about that bit. And so it like, like I say, no argument. He is the fucking worst, but mm. at least he's like interesting bad rather than just like boring bad. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, that, that, that tracks, that makes sense. And, and I wanted to to kind of ask you as well about Bridget, because whether it's in the first film and even in the third one as well, she it's her and Ginger and they both carry the film and their relationship is the central like sibling sisterly love story. Yeah. Um here it's mostly her by herself. Um so she carries she needs to carry the entire film with occasional kind of um hallucinations of of ginger but what do you make about uh, what do you make of emily perkins in this film and kind of how she needs to essentially be the both her own villain her own savior and carry the entire film and the memory of ginger in herself yeah i mean it's it's a feat and um she i mean she's in almost every scene there really isn't any action um that goes on without her and um, there's a couple of bits where ghost is off um doing something when she's not on the screen but she really does as you say you know she carries the whole story um and she really is um her own her own savior and her own kind of mm, worst enemy in some respects as well um i think that she does an amazing job at it and especially following the first film when ginger is such a charismatic mm. character and bridget is much more the kind of um she's a bit of a shadow isn't she yes. um, you know they they have an interesting interplay as sisters mm. with ginger being even before um the transformation or, or before she starts getting wolfy um you know she is very much the kind of yeah that that sort of that charismatic um slightly more outgoing one and bridget has a lot to do to kind of step up into that leading role but without just aping it i think it could have been again easy for the film to have leaned into that sort of lusty um animalistic uber charismatic side of things and maybe you know because bridget is now infected that the wolf kind of gives her those characteristics but it doesn't really it leans into what makes bridget bridget in the first film you know we when we first see her she is um she's still researching she's in the library you know she's looking for the knowledge behind it she um is trying to keep it under control and um uh, yeah, like I say, I just think she does she does a really brilliant job um, in kind of making Bridget a bigger character that can then carry the second film through. And what do you think, um, the way that you put it, uh, what do you think about when Bridget gets wolfy? <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's interesting because she... Again, a little bit like Jennifer Check. Um, mm ginger in the first film there's lots of her just kind of walking down corridors in slow-mo with boys ogling at her and you know her looking extremely sexy like you know she is such a beautiful um like just captivating very, character very stunning character and also very like physically stunning actress who plays her as well Catherine Isabel a hundred percent yeah absolutely um and so again, it would feel off for Bridget to suddenly sort of transform in a kind of, I don't know, like she's been made over type mm. way. Mm -hmm. What again, it actually does is when she starts to become wolfy is it sort of, it accentuates her. So her eyes go darker, mm -hmm. um, her, you know, the, the sort of, in a way, yeah, her not, mouth goes not 100%. Yeah, her mouth goes always. So it's sort of like, like muzzles mm -hmm. in, you know, it sort of, mm -hmm. sort of puckers. And I feel like when Ginger transforms, um, or in her sort of, um, in betweeny stages, mm -hmm. 
it's almost more feline than canine, but Bridget feels much more sort of canine and mm-hmm. and sort of darker, you know. Yeah, like she's the like she's a, almost a a black furred wolf, and Ginger's yeah. a white fur. Well, she does when she dies at the end of the first one. She's got white fur, and yeah. her hair turns white when she's in the yeah. in between transformation in between wolf's wolfiness. Um, <laughs> But there's, I mean, it's interesting because so much of the film is spent like with Bridget essentially like testing out and harming her body, but we don't really get to see her go wolfy until very, very late in the film. Um, And it's kind of like, I think I felt like the film was teasing us because that's what we're set up to expect because of the first one. It's like, when is she going to go wolf? When is she going to go wolf? When is she going to eat some motherfuckers? That's what, that's what we're here to see, but it isn't. It isn't what we get at all. It's much more psychological and much yeah. more, you know, there are different people with very different experiences of the same, let's call it disease. Um, Absolutely. And do you think, um, do you think that's because Bridget and Ginger are such different characters in themselves? Do you think that it's because Bridget has seen Ginger kind of go through it already and like knows what to expect? Like, what, what do you think it is that holds Bridget back? I think you're right in both instances. I think it's because they're both very different, but also because mm. Bridget didn't get in the same way like she didn't have that traumatic somebody just ran out of the forest and bit me and then trying to figure out what the fuck was going on and why was her body and her hunger transforming so much like was it just puberty or was it something supernatural so she's already seen all of that and she's seen where it ends and also she's just a very different type of personality so i think you're i think you're right in that it's kind of both and also, I think it's different because it's a different team. Every every what's interesting about the behind the scenes of the Ginger Snaps franchise is that every single writer and director of the films was involved in the previous one in some way, but they're not the original screenwriter Cameron Walton or the original director John Fawcett. So necessarily, the characters are going in kind of different directions. Like they have their their origin story, but they're going in a in a completely new route and being scripted and directed by different people with different sensibilities. And yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I was I was kind of looking up the team um, mm-hmm. uh, in prep, and like y- you can see where they've sort of worked together in the past or worked on yes. other stuff together. Obviously, like this this Canadian crew where it's mm-hmm. all sort of. Um, you know, sort of one big pool of people. Um, but you can still feel those sort of individual fingerprints on each three films. I love it. And what do you think kind of filmmaking style? How does it, um, where does it go differently? Because obviously this is a, a different director. Yeah, I mean, so this one feels, um, it's funny how you were talking about the sort of grunginess of the first one. Like this one, it feels very 2004 to me. <laughs> like the 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 hair and the style of the girls in the clinic um the like definitely like um the the orderly guy he i mean he's just you know he could be played by any number of <laughs> sort of cookie cutter blonde boys from you know 2004 who were doing the rounds um the the sort of the script and the look of it like it's the colors are quite washed out um the screenplay is very sort of sassy and um i i like that it doesn't have too much kind of like of that that like meta sort of knowingness that was so um popular sort of in the late 90s and early mm-hmm. noughties um but it still has that yeah kind of um, that just like attitude to mm-hmm. it, which I really like. I like the the girls in the clinic all have, you know, their own particular sort of aspect of being, you know, fucked up or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it feels it feels different because the first one feels like a high school movie mm-hmm. and this one feels like a kind of 
I mean, it feels very similar to a lot of films like we've, you know, um, mm -hmm. Girl Interrupted, when you get a load of young women locked up together, medicated or or not yeah. medicated. It's very, you know, they're all drying it's very out. teenage girl psychiatric ward vibes. 100%, yeah. And on that note, the main kind of new character addition to this is Ghost, played mm -hmm. by baby Tatiana Maslany. <laughs> Yes! adorable <laughs> what the fuck so talented i forgot how tiny she was in this film she's a little baby she's and she's so, so good. tiny and it's so interesting uh putting in a new sister figure mm -hmm. for bridget but is you know she's so much younger she's got braces and she reads comic books and you know we get to learn that she's got her own issues fine um but you know she's such a departure again from ginger yeah. and again i think it's so lovely that they chose to give bridget another like basically a surrogate sister after she's lost ginger but have gone like they've just departed so mm. um, dramatically from what ginger's like i thought that was a really nice touch so what do you think of Ghost once we realize who Ghost actually is? <laughs> I it's great. Like <laughs> the the hints and the way they build it slowly slowly about how um you shouldn't necessarily trust this child whether it be from um grandma's sort of darting eyes or her <laughs> reaching for the panic button while she's all like bandaged up or you know the fact that when they turn up to the house ghost just okay firstly that she can drive secondly that she like knows I mean, truly, how to she's like fucking 11 years old what are you doing driving ghost and like Bridget just doesn't even like question it at all it just it just seems to have completely naturally fallen but Ghost is going to be the one driving them away from the clinic. I mean, I guess if you and your sister are transforming into werewolves, then you're kind of, your bandwidth for acceptable teenage girl behavior has kind of been, you know, expanded. But Great still, it's, but still. It's, I find it more weird to see an 11-year-old girl driving a car <laughs> than I would seeing a teenage girl transforming into a werewolf. I completely agree. <laughs> and then you get to the house and she's, you know, siphoning petrol out of the car so she can start the generator. And then she creates that like terrifying booby trap scarecrow thing. Oh my God. Um, yeah. So I, the way that they build this up and first she tells the lie about the, um, the grandma and how the fire yeah. started with the Christmas lights, which I really loved. It really reminded me of Gremlins, you know, the really dark Christmas <laughs> yeah. story in Gremlins. And then she's like, ha ha ha, no, I'm joking. She fell asleep with a cigarette. And you're like, I don't know how much I trust this child. How much should I trust this child? And then you find out you shouldn't trust her at all because she's a little psychopath. With her little psychopathic room that she's completely plastered, plastered with cutouts of comic books and like weird drawings and collages of burned of her burned grandmother yeah yeah i love ghost love oh she's amazing tiny baby psychopath yes yes she's so <laughs> great and i love that after this film especially with it being a sequel after this film basically centering around like werewolves mm -hmm. and the horror coming from werewolves mm -hmm. the film ends with it being oh no actually the real danger here is this tiny child <laughs> the it's bad seed the, the, the canadian the, bad seed um, i love it on like grandma getting home and she's got bridget locked in the basement i was like this went somewhere I wasn't expecting it to go, and I am here for it. It's like, you know what she, she reminded me of? That final shot of Ghost kind of at her desk, doing her yeah. little collages. Yeah. Felt very seen, not gonna lie. I did used to do that. <laughs> not like lock up werewolves in a basement. I didn't have a basement, but I did used to like do a lot of collaging and crafting. <laughs> Bit weird, but relatable. Anyway, that final shot reminded me a lot of um, Mr. Glass. 
from the Shyamalan oh, movies. Great shout. Yes. <laughs> so, so much. It's like she, it's same as Mr. Glass. They just want to like write real life comic books. Mm-hmm. They want to just manipulate and play around with people like chess peoples, like chess pieces, so they can create a living comic book story. Yeah. And also not just create a living story, but I thought it was so chilling that thing about how like it's played that it's like, oh, it's cute. But actually, when you think about it, that she pulls like where she says that um, comics sends their heroes out into the world like unprepared. And so she basically pulls all the powers from all of the other ones to like make the perfect person or the perfect hero like that sounds cute and everything and then you realize once you realize more about her like that is all kinds of fucked up (laughs) well fucking controlling psychopath yes i want a whole ass sequel about ghost (laughs) yes i want to know i want to see her when she grows up i want to see her with uh, you know ginger on a leash not ginger (laughs) sorry bridget because ginger's dead bridget leashed um i was like what what because we essentially, and we should talk about the the next film, but this, which is a, a sort of a prequel and it's set in the past. So this, once you've watched all three movies, is effectively mm. the end of Ginger and Bridget's yeah, story. Exactly. So Bridget just ends up in the basement. Yeah. What happens next, Anna? We I need the movie <laughs> where Tatiana Maslany comes back and like plays adult ghost. And yeah, like you say, she's just got like... <laughs> Bridget like a poodle on a leash. I mean, okay, wait. Let me pitch you something. Also, Tatiana Maslany, not even Loki, absolutely, genuinely one of the most talented actresses of her generation. Oh, unbelievable. Her work on Orphan Black is mind-blowing. It is genuinely mind-blowing. And like the fact that it was so kind of, it was recognized, but not as recognized as it should have been. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Fuck yeah. Jared Leto and his nominations. Nominate Tatiana <laughs> Maslany all over again in retrospect for a show that ended quite a few years ago. Yeah. Reparations must be made for Tatiana <laughs> Maslany. But my point being, what if they do come back, they do dream forces again, and it's an adult ghost played by now adult, hyper-talented Tatiana Maslany, and br- she's forced Bridget to have werewolf puppies <gasps> because she wants more werewolves. So she can go more powerful. And that works so perfectly because you get the moment in this film where she's like, um, she says to Bridget, uh, you know, why didn't he kill you? And Bridget says, he doesn't want to kill me. He wants to mate with me. And so it's already planted that seed. Oh my God, it's seamless. People, just commission, commission Becky Dark and myself to write this sequel. Fund I know there's us, a series. People. Fund us. <laughs> what should the name be? We'll come up with it later. All I can think about is just ghost puns right now, and it is not the time. Um, <laughs> Ginger snaps for ghost puppies. <laughs> like ghost protocol? <laughs> oh my goodness. So <laughs> I, I also just realized, for shame on me, the fact that Ginger snaps unleashed is a cruel joke because she ends up literally oh, kind of on oh a leash god, I've li- how have i literally only just realized that, <laughs> that i've, al- so I've only just realized funny. this myself too <laughs> they must have they must have been so proud of that just for you and i to have completely glossed over that phenomenal pun i think i do you know what i've never seen anyone else comment on it i might be wrong <laughs> i've read a lot about the ginger snaps films but <laughs> probably not everything but if anybody else says i uh, maybe it's a first that we've noticed that unleashed that That is (laughs) props so let's move on now to ginger snobs back the beginning Mm -hmm. this is a prequel to the first film so what does this one add or how does it change the story of the Fitzgerald sisters so this film basically walked so Fear Street 1666 could run, right? I mean, this like, this did it so Becky long ago. snapped. <laughs> like, so long ago. I was like, wait, 
wait a minute. <laughs> wow. Wow. I hadn't even made the connection. You're so right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. So, I mean, what is it? What does it add? Basically, it, it gives us a bit more, um, it gives us a bit more mythology in a way about werewolves in America. Canada. And it also, Canada, sorry, my God, gives us a bit more um, about werewolves in Canada. And um, it also builds on this, like, this really central, central theme of Bridget and Ginger and Mm -hmm. their kind of undying, unbreakable bond. Um, And that, you know, we're sort of introduced to it in voiceover right at the top of the film. Um, And I think it's I think it's Ginger's um, voiceover saying that they are two sisters bound by blood mm-hmm. um, and that they will be together forever. And the film, um, basically, it's it's Ginger and Bridget, as we know them. They've got the same names. Um, it's in like 1815. Yeah. Um, so back, you know, um, quite near the start of... Um, I mean, my Canadian history isn't great, but, you know, it's it's kind of trader forts and all that kind of thing. Like, it's way back, way back at the start. And I think they make a couple of comments about how um, the fort that the film is based in is like the furthest that man has kind of, all of the, the white man has kind of got um that far so like if Mm -hmm. they push any further in that direction they're sort of going into uncharted territory Mm -hmm. and you get this idea that they've sort of already like they've pushed too far and you get um a lot of interaction with the indigenous people um and they also towards the end of the film um start to sprinkle in some kind of folklore about wendigos which i was (sighs) I'm not going to lie, I was a little bit disappointed about because whenever you get indigenous people from the Americas, from the now Americas, in horror films, it's always the Wendigo. And so I was like, I was like, I'm pretty sure they have other folklore guys, but anyway, fine. And then I was like, okay, this is actually really interesting because we've got um, native characters alongside white characters. They are just victims of the wolves as the white characters are they are also victims of you know white intolerance this is really interesting actually Mm -hmm. and then towards the end they were like oh it's the wendigo i was like oh for fuck's sake (laughs) of course it is you know so i thought that was a bit of a shame but other than that um there's like there's some really interesting stuff and i was very pleasantly surprised just in like the quality of this film, like the performances are really good. And some of the cinematography and stuff is really good. And this is what I say. This is what I mean when I say, especially this one, I think, is better than it has any right to be <laughs> as a <laughs> third installment of a uh, uh, sort of early noughties. Yeah, that's a trilogy. 2004. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, because this and two were two thousand four, right? So, did they just film them back to back? Do you know what? Um, I think they film. I don't think they filmed them back to back. Um, actually, maybe they did. Wait, did they? Because they know the mind of because they're both two thousand four. You're right. Dates are two thousand four, but I don't know what the filming schedule was like. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just you know for two. Um, for the second sequel in a trilogy um it's just yeah it was really good anna (laughs) i mean it kind of okay so it does feel very of its time but it also oddly i don't know if you got the sense feels very euro horror which i think is weird to say because it's 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 canadian so if anything it's like camouflages as an american production but it isn't and like mm-hmm. i think it's important to separate the the canadianness of it all because you know it's the pride and joy of canadian horror ginger snaps but absolutely and so it should be and you get <laughs> so much um like in both of these films actually mm-hmm. those kind of um like the snowy 
um, yes. settings like really play into uh, the feel of the film. So it is important. It is important that it's pointed out that these are Canadian. So the, the, the thing that it reminded me of was these films like um, Brotherhood of the Wolf, which is like a French werewolf film, kind of from the mid-early noughties as well. Mm-hmm. This sort of like period, but kind of anachronistic period piece yeah. where it's horror, but the horror is really condensed and really dark and kind of very physical, but kind of trying to be classy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like it tries so hard to build up this massive mythology, kind of go to the root of their lycanthropy. And, and I kind of, you know, I, I think it, works it's a radically different film from the other two like radically different um yeah and because of that like it just i just kind of think of it as almost a different type of story because it feels so much of its time but also of a completely different sensibility in a weird way Mm, yeah and and i think what adds to that weirdness is the fact that i don't know if you got the sense you you tell me that Bridget and Ginger, so uh, Emily Perkins and Catherine Isabel, are uh, their characters in this one are named exactly the same. They're Bridget and Ginger, Ginger Fitzgerald, but they're also acting in very much the same way as they had in the first film. Their yeah, dynamic absolutely. between each other, the way they speak. There's even yeah. one point I think where Ginger says, "This is fucked," and I'm like, "It's 1815, sis. What?" Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, when when you said anachronistic, the first thing that sprung to mind for me was the language. Like, absolutely, the way that especially Ginger talks. And like, what did you make of that? Well, I, I think it's a choice. Like, what do you make of that choice of making them sort of very much um, feel out of time? Yeah, I completely agree that it's a choice. I don't think it's that you know they they messed up. Um, and the, you know, they, they didn't know what people would have actually spoken like in, in those days. I think it is a choice. And I think it worked for me. I liked that that anchored it in the characters. And so like, okay, so if we do take, um, Fear Street 1666 as an example, where you've Mm -hmm. got, um, you know, the same teenage characters suddenly supplanted to sort of oldie timey um, storylines um, in that they were given different accents. Their characters were given different names. Um, their Some of their characteristics may have been similar, but it definitely wasn't the same characters. And I think by by using uh, speech and language the way that they do by giving them the same names by um, giving them the same sort of dynamic and acting style I think it just roots it and and shows us um, in a nice shorthand way that you know these these are the same girls that we have come to know and love and fear um, and that it it kind of makes that through line i suppose for this central premise of their blood bond and being together forever it just it just makes it so much like stronger and clearer in this really shorthand way so for me i like i didn't find it um sort of brought me out at all i was along for the ride and did you find because it kind of essentially mimics the story of the first film but in a completely different setting, kind of, did that element work for you? And like, did the ending work for you, which is essentially the same ending as the first one? Yeah, I actually, I'm really interested to talk to you about the ending because mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I'm clear on what happened. So I really want okay. you to tell me what happened. Um, but <laughs> I'll try. Yes, it did. It did in terms of that kind of mirroring of structure and and the story. It did. It was. It was kind of different enough, and the setting was different enough. Um, and the interplay with, you know, the the men in the fort, um, especially the kind of the 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 misogynist priest, I thought mm-hmm. he was really interesting. Um, and then the introduction of um, the kind of sub storyline of um, basically you know, the, the white invasion and then the knock-on of, um, you know, white men fathering children 
with native women and um i think having jeffrey the little boy um again adding in this more sort of childlike character like they do with ghost in the second one um like it just added so much kind of I don't know, like an ex for me, an extra level of like pathos to it when you really like, especially the the makeup on that kid is so horrific, mm-hmm. um, and that you know his dad has kind of he won't admit to people that he's dead and that he's got him kind of locked up and hidden away. All of that just added like an extra little kind of um, like frisson to it, I suppose. Um, especially when you uh, weave into it all of the complications around kind of like racial heritage and stuff. So yeah, like it, it was, it was. I was happy to just follow these girls again on a similar journey, but I thought all of the extra elements that they added in, um, just yeah, just sort of helped it not feel like it was a, a straight repeat. Hmm. No, it didn't feel like a straight repeat, but um. I do wonder, like, what the ending meant, mm. because there's something that they say at the end, like the day of reckoning, or the yeah. day the cure grew stronger. I'm like, but what is the cure? You know what I mean? Yeah. Isn't it yeah, like it's- the infection more like the cure? Or is the cure to their lycanthropy kind of their blood? Like it just felt like a little bit like an open door for a continuation that has not happened. That hasn't happened. Yeah, I agree. And um in fact I because obviously I hadn't seen two and three, I actually when it finished, I immediately looked up like, is there a fourth? Mm. Is that you know, do I just not know about it? Um and it does leave it open. And I wasn't even a hundred percent sure, and this is what I really wanted to check with you about whether Bridget was infected by the end of the film. Is that what happens when they kind of I think yes. hands? Okay, yeah. Fine. Their, bl- their blood mixes, which is the same thing she does um, at the end of the first one, right? First, it's sort yeah. of it's sort of a way to demonstrate her 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 love for her sister, right? It's the fact that we will carry the same disease, you know, our blood will be the same, and if it means that it's infected with werewolf illness then it's infected for the both of us yeah but the thing that is i think slightly confusing and perhaps because it was trying to set up (laughs) (laughs) hi vlad hello sir (laughs) shush oh my god i'm so sorry (laughs) don't you dare apologize for him I think perhaps because I was trying to leave the the door open for a potentially fourth film. Yeah. It's like, what is their lineage? I think it's trying to set up something about their lineage and their blood, how like either the story is destined to repeat itself because it's been prophesized, because one of the the hunter in the film says that he's been dreaming of Bridget and they kind of yes. go against the 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 well the indication that the seer gives them of like you should kill the boy so that you essentially your family does not carry this curse. And does that mean, going back to the first one, that they were always destined to be infected and to become werewolves because right, exactly. because who bites Bridget is never exp- uh, who bites Ginger in the first one is never explained or elaborated on it's a completely random attack and what it what it made me wonder was if it's almost like raw where it is literally like passed down like through the female uh, female line of the mm-hmm. family you know is it is it genetic or is it um yeah, it's sort of supernatural in a in a kind of you know fate um, mm-hmm. inevitability type way, like an inescapable fate. Like this is a genetic, say, like disease or condition, and you will eventually get it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yes, I mean, I those were all questions that I definitely had coming away from it. Because there is a point in the first one in the first film where their mom, Mimi Rogers. Mm-hmm. Kind of, there are hints. It's never fully explicitly explained, but it's hinted that she knows what's going on with Ginger. Yeah, it is. Which so would perhaps is that? Track, which would make sense. It? Yeah, yeah, 
but it is it is quite oblique it's not yeah it's not very direct it's not saying this is how it works it's very much you know like the whole thing about the red and the black because of the hair like sisters united in blood together forever it's the same stuff saying the first film but it's more like a bond but this makes it feel or seem like fate yeah absolutely um and you know with all of so much talk about blood and that the the blood bond um Mm. it it really is almost sort of having its cake and eating it um, between the sort of fate and genetics thing, where it's like there's kind of people having supernatural dreams and, you know, this is our destiny, but also driving at home that it's like in their blood and they've got this blood bond and that's going to go down through the generations. So, yeah, um, I loved, though, mm-hmm. saying that, um the moment when i thought the whole like uh kind of finale with ginger coming to get bridget so she you know she's gone out and bridget counting to 100 like she does at the beginning of the film um ginger coming back uh fighting the guys and them trying to like burn bridget while she's like still waiting for ginger to come and get her like all of that and it was filmed really beautifully like all of the the kind of fire effects and everything like looks really amazing there's an incredible shot when ginger opens the gates and the camera kind of swoops up like above her like this amazing like down shot of her opening the gates and then the walls like coming in um on either side of her so all of that i thought was brilliant and then it just all led up lit up it all led up to that moment um when you know you're you're led to believe led to believe led to believe because of these ritualistic dreams and um the kind of uh <laughs> um classic because she's been hanging out with um indigenous people so of course she has to go on like a spirit journey um the the um idea that she has to stab ginger and that she's going to kill ginger mm-hmm. and then that moment where she's like she says together forever and then turns around and like kills the guy instead i was literally like yeah you know i was i was just the build up to it and then just like the execution of that moment just really i was in i was all in (laughs) and and to start wrapping up our, our chat about these films becky one of the things that i find very curious about this trilogy as a whole Mm. is that the sisters remain basically the same age they're always teen girls yeah um so where do you think that this whole ginger snaps trilogy stands within teen horror as a as its own subgenre yeah i guess because um see obviously they're high school in the first one and then in the second one i get the impression that like even though the film is released four years later not that much time can have passed because Mm -hmm. Bridget is still sort of on top of the the wolfiness right yeah and then in the third one they're the same age but it's like back in time so they're like people (laughs) old-timey teenagers old-timey teenagers so I mean I think I think this is a um I think it's a a key text Anna (laughs) in the kind of teen horror subgenre because and in fact I am so in uh, 2000 when the first one came out I turned 18 and so maybe that is why actually I didn't see it at the time Mm -hmm. because you know films like The Craft were out those just couple of years earlier when I was sort of 14, 15, 16 Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe at 18 a sort of a teen werewolf thing just wasn't sort of on my radar as much as it would have been a couple of years earlier and I'm actually I I I sort of um lament that slightly I think that if I had if I'd had access to this when I was you know just entering adolescence um because of the sorts of um issues that it deals with through the werewolf lens whether that be um periods hormones um 
you know, drug use, uh, suicidal thoughts, you know, mental health, um, misogyny, all of that that is is explored through the trilogy. I can see why it would be such a kind of, I don't know, like a like a heady um, and like really sort of important and informative group of films to watch when you're that age um so yeah i mean i've i've discovered them slightly late really in terms of um you know my my sort of age but i can see why and i think i think today like i mean i would i would definitely recommend this for younger teens because i do think that it deals with all of that stuff even though the um the style might be a little dated the messages are still really important and it's interesting you you mentioned that because it it has been announced that there's a new series on development based on Ginger Snaps. Yes. Um, yes. More <laughs> more wolfy shit. Um, <laughs> what do you think a new version of the Fitzgerald sister story could could potentially bring? I mean, nothing's been announced. We just know that it's in development and kind of who's attached to write it and stuff, but. What do you think could it could it potentially bring to the table now in this like you know new era of feminine That's horror? Such a such a good question. And um I'm never good at these sorts of predictions. Um but I mean I would assume, especially off the back of um series like Chucky, for example, that there would be a much more um sort of diverse and representative set of characters um and i would hope that as well you know i would love to see um more um you know say it's set in high school for example like or or i think chucky's even junior school isn't it because the kids are really young in that um but i would love to see um you know some lgbtq characters um and some characters from you know different ra- different racial backgrounds um and I do think that werewolves specifically, I mean, even if you go back to, um, you know, Oz in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, again, that was used um, and has been used in so many different properties to explore those. Because when you're a teenager, you are literally transforming, your body is transforming and you're sprouting hair and you're getting feelings that you don't understand. And, you know, you're lusty for someone one moment and the next moment you're biting their head off. Like all of this stuff is just so perfectly in line with um, all of the tropes that come along with werewolves. So Mm. what I would hope is that they take all that tropey stuff um and you know use it to tell teen stories like they need to be told in 2022 i think that's really really pointed and and it, there's something you mentioned when we were talking about um, ginger snaps unleashed of this idea of control and how desperately bridget wanted to control this thing that she knew was kind of inevitable and she wanted to control it via science and it like that's such a key thing for teenagers as well you're right like this you know bodily changes hormonal changes emotional changes kind of trying to figure out who you might potentially become as an adult and kind of the pressure as well of making choices that will affect the rest of your life when you don't know what the fuck is going on or (laughs) what you want to do like there is this like this thing this theme that's so explored in the second film i think kind of so much better than in the first one because the first one is so much about unbridled like rage and teen angst and anger and hunger and appetites and all that stuff yes like if there was a way to combining those two kind of core push and pull things of being a teenager of like so many people expecting and demanding so much of you your body and your mind going through so many different changes and you in the middle as a like little human being trying to form itself into some sort of like person trying to keep control of yourself of what's going on of what everyone else around you wants and demands from you like and you know sometimes that manifests in really destructive or self-destructive behaviors I'm basically thinking, like, what would it look like if it was Ginger Snaps meets Euphoria? Oh, amazing. 
I tell you what, I wouldn't be a teen again for a million quid. You could not get me anywhere near it. Oh my god, a teenager in 2022? Absolutely oh, fuck that. Nope, horrendous. nope, 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 no, I am in awe of teenagers who like are thriving and surviving right now. I'm like, babes, I'm barely managing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like you're 15 and have the pressure of the entire fucking world on your shoulders and also social media and the internet bless the internet but no no absolutely not yeah. like no we we mm. need we need some some werewolves to come along and give these kids some guidance <laughs> I'd rather be a teenager like in the 90s or in the 70s rather than be a teenager now Oh yeah, without a doubt, without. A I've doubt. seen Euphoria. I don't want it. I don't want anything close to that. Absolutely not. <laughs> Unsubscribe. <laughs> I'd rather be a werewolf than a teenager. I think that's what I'm realizing. I'd rather be a werewolf any day of the week. Actually, I'd rather be a vampire. If I if I can pick my monsters, I'd rather be a vampire. If I was a vampire teenager, though, I would love that. Ah. Uh... That's a different conversation. Yeah. In fact, I'm... I think we've already had that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, a Papa Gori vampire. None of that, like, Twilight bullshit. I oh, mean, no, like. No, 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 no. I mean, like, euphoria, but make it vampires. <laughs> <laughs> Glitter, but in a different way. <laughs> Yet again, funders, please send us money. Let us write <laughs> these things. <laughs> I mean, Twilight meets Euphoria basically means uh, glittery penises. Yeah. <laughs> do I? Do I want that? I'm not sure I want that. I'm willing to explore. <laughs> <laughs> I love. I love that it was like. I'm not sure if I want glittery penises, and you were like, "I'm willing to explore," and then the doorbell <laughs> went. It was like. <laughs> It's my glittery penis delivery, Becky. <laughs> I've Must already go. ordered it. <laughs> my Friday night's just starting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly that. So, <laughs> on, on that note... <laughs> I must go and attend to a glittery penis, so... Yes. Becky Dark, thank you so much for this oh, conversation. Adam. It's thank been a you. joy. It has, as always, been a joy. <laughs> and for anyone who uh, wants to follow and read and listen to more of your work, where can people find you online? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, the best place is on Twitter. Everything goes on there. I am at Bunny Dark. Um, and I also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Bunny Dark, where if you want to throw me a couple of quid to support my work, you can do it there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thanks, Anna. Chat soon.